Hello, church, and welcome back to the next episode in our adult Bible study podcast series. Uh, for those that have been following along or have the, the material that are doing this with your kids, we are in the D6 curriculum on Lesson 6, uh, the second quarter, Lesson 6. The title of this week's lesson is The Neighborly Thing to Do. Uh, and we're going to be looking at a, a parable, which is probably one of the most well-known parables in the Bible. Uh, and although it's probably one of the most well-known, I think oftentimes our understanding is a little bit uh, surface, um, a little bit elementary, if you will. And so my hope is that as we go through it today, we can pick up those uh, the, the low-hanging fruit, uh, so to speak, the easier lessons. And I think those are important lessons to pass on to our kids and, and also to be reminded of ourselves. But I'm really hoping that as we really dig into the text and ask some of the, the more important and challenging questions that we can see an even deeper meaning that's there. Uh, and I hope and pray will be an encouragement to you. So uh, with that, let's just jump right in, uh, in Luke chapter 10 and verse 25 uh, through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who's my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, You, go and do likewise. So, as we jump into this, I think we'll see, you know, there's a couple of, I think, maybe simpler, uh, more elementary lessons that we draw from this, right? It's this idea that you know, our neighbor is everyone that we come into contact with. And it's this idea that love requires action. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But I also want to dig a little deeper to really see, you know, what is what is Jesus' point in this parable? What is Jesus getting at? Is that is it really that simple? Or is Jesus trying to point us to a deeper truth and a deeper meaning? And I and I I think he is. Uh so you know, the first thing as we read this, the the fundamental question at the beginning is this lawyer. And when I say a lawyer, we're talking about in, in Jewish times or in those times, uh, a Jewish lawyer was not, as we think, a lawyer, a trial lawyer, a criminal lawyer. A lawyer was someone who was an expert in the law of Moses. So a scribe, a scholar, a biblical scholar, if you will. Uh, and so he asked this question to Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And course, Jesus, being the good teacher, flips it back on him with a question, asking him, what do you think? And he replies with uh, quoting two Old Testament passages. The first is actually from the study's namesake. This is the D6 study, which we've talked about in previous lessons, comes from Deuteronomy 6, a very, very well-known text to the Jews. And in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, 
it's the first part he's quoting. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And then he goes on to tack on a passage from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, another very well-known text. And he says, um, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's the second half of that verse, uh, Leviticus 19, 18. So these, you know, I, I think this is probably similar to asking somebody a question about salvation and having them uh, quote John 3.16. It's a passage that most of us know and have memorized and have heard. Uh, and, and so those, it's kind of funny because this, this was not a very challenging question in that regard. And one of the things I find really kind of funny about this interaction is, you know, we see at the beginning of the text here that the lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test. So... We don't understand much more, you know, don't get much more insight into his thought process. But by posing this questions, he thinks he can trick Jesus into saying something. But what I find funny is that when Jesus replies with a question, look closely, Jesus says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And I think right there in that second half, how do you read it? Jesus is appealing to the lawyer's pride because he was somebody who studied the law, who knew the law. And I think without even thinking, I, I envision this, you know, young scholar standing there in the audience, kind of when Jesus asks him that question, how do you read it? I see him standing up a little bit straighter and kind of puffing out his chest a little bit and just the the words just rolling right out of his mouth. He's memorized this passage. It's He's thought about this. He doesn't even have to think about it now. He can just regurgitate that, oh, love the Lord your God. And, you know, and, and I think though, as the words are rolling out of his mouth, I think he has this, you know, moment of realization, like, ah, what am I doing? You know, I'm, I'm answering the question. I was trying to trick him and like, he tricked me and now I'm answering my own question, uh, which is why, you know, when Jesus says, well, yeah, you, you've answered correctly, do this and you'll live that it says, well, he, he, you know, wanting to be justified, it says, uh, then he goes on to say to Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? Um, and so, and that's where I think we really start to dig into the meat of this text. But let's not forget, though, that that context in this where the question being asked is, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Which for those of us that have been in the church, we should recognize right away that that's kind of a loaded question, right? When you say, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The implication there is that there is something that you can do to inherit eternal life. And the really interesting thing is that when Jesus answers him, he says, you've answered correctly, do this and you will inherit life. You will live. So again, I think this needs to, this is something that we should pay attention to that right off the bat, the whole foundation of this discussion is based on something that we would view to be an impossibility. Well, there's nothing that you and I can do. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then we'll come back to that. But I think what we'll realize is that what Jesus gives us, the bar that Jesus sets for what we're supposed to do is one that we should recognize that is beyond us, that you and I do not have the capacity to do this way, to do this, to live this way, to love in this fashion. So uh, moving on though. So the first truth is Jesus dives into this story. And this is one of those more elementary truths that I really think that uh, for those of you that are going through this study with your kids, this is one of the important things that we want to teach our kids, right? As Jesus relays this story about this man that's uh, battered, robbed, left for dead, you see these three characters, this Levite, this priest, and the Samaritan come by, and only the Samaritan stops to help. Now, I won't go into a lot of detail 
as much as I think Jonathan Dandy would love it if I would go into a history of Assyria and the the captivity in the north and everything. Um, but understand that when the northern kingdom was uh, taken over by Assyria and exiled, they were basically uh, intermixed with other nationalities. It's just one of the things the Assyrians did. And so through that, uh, they really, they, they intermixed, they intermarried, and their Jewish line was not uh, protected. And so whereas in the south, in Judah, when they were exiled by Babylon, when they came back, they had been able to maintain their bloodline. They had been able to remain some level of, you know, ethnic purity, if you will. Uh, and so they were able to trace their lines back and you could actually have a Levite uh, because they could trace their lineage back to uh, Levi, back to Moses or Aaron. Uh, but in the North, they they intermixed and they were kind of viewed by the the Jews as half-breeds. Uh, so Samaritans were, you know, they they had left the, the, you know, ethnic background of the Jews and in the process of doing so were kind of barred from the temple. They had established their own temple, their own way of worshiping God. We see that in other passages, like when Jesus interacts with the Samaritan woman. Uh, and so through that whole background and history, there was a lot of bad blood between Jews and Samaritans. Uh, it's kind of the difference between, you know, if you see somebody you don't know, you probably don't have a lot of compassion, but imagine somebody that was as close as a brother that in your mind had, you know, betrayed you and stabbed you in the back. That's the kind of person that you just loathe and hate. And that's the way the Jews and the Samaritans felt about each other. So when Jesus pulls the Samaritan into the story as the one who has compassion and helps, this is kind of that exclamation point that Jesus is making that it doesn't matter who the person is. It doesn't matter if this is friend, foe, this is another child of God. And so when we talk about who our neighbor is, it tears down all those, you know, boundaries that we fabricate, that we build up, all those walls we build of, you know, ethnic uh, differences and uh, racial differences and economic differences. We are all children in the sight of God. So Jesus is emphasizing that point in the selection of a Samaritan in this story. Um, and, and so that's, that's, I think the first, you know, again, one of those truths that we need to pass on to our kids. And we also need to be reminded, uh, it doesn't matter who it is that we're interacting with. We need to see them as children of God and, and treat them with the same love and respect. The next truth that we see though, is that love results in action. I find it interesting that in all three accounts in verse 31, 32, and 33, it says that the priest saw the man. Uh, and then he crossed over on the other side and it says that the Levite saw the man. Uh, and then also the Samaritan in verse 33 saw the man. It's that same verb. It's that same word that they all saw the man. They saw the need, but only the Samaritan had compassion. And it was from that compassion that he then acted. Um, and it's also important to see in, in the context here that the Samaritan had no reason to expect anything in return, right? This man had been beaten and left for dead. This was long before credit cards and ATMs and things of that nature. Uh, most likely, this most of this man's possessions were taken from him when he was robbed. Uh, you know, the clothes on your back was you know, uh, one of the most valuable possessions back in those days. So he didn't have anything left. The Samaritan wasn't going to get anything in return yet. He showed love. He took care of him. He made sure that his needs were met. And that is real love, right? We do things not expecting anything in return. And it's the thing that I find challenging about this is we see this in the context of this story. 
And we think that, you know, if I saw somebody that was, you know, like beaten to death and needed help, I would, I would help them. I would, you know, that's a life or death situation, right? But how often do we see other needs that aren't life or death and we just turn a blind eye? And we don't even do that to people that we don't know or don't care, but we oftentimes do that to people that we do supposedly love that are closest to us. Uh, you know, as a husband and a father, I think about all the times where, um, you know, I, I see an opportunity to maybe help out, uh, help my wife out or do something for one of the kids. But in my mind, I think, ah, oh, you know, I've had a long week, a long week or a long day. I make excuses, you know, and if you were to ask me like, oh man, like if, if your wife was in distress and danger, would you be willing to risk your life to save her? And I, I wouldn't even hesitate. Of course I would. I would risk my life to save any one of my kids. Uh, and it's that question of, you know, we say that we're willing to die for those we love, but oftentimes our day-to-day actions show that we're not willing to live for them, that we don't make those day-to-day sacrifices. Uh, or when we do, we get upset when it's not reciprocated and that it's not returned. And so we see what real love is. Love, Real love is giving and expecting nothing in return. And it's action too. It's not just feeling compassion, but it's an actual action. Uh, so Jesus demonstrates through this parable what real love is. Responding compassionately to the needs around us, which of course you have to be looking, you have to see first. Um, and reminding us that everyone that we come into contact with is a child of God. And everyone we come into contact with deserves that love and respect. And these are all lessons that we can teach our kids. Uh, if you're going through this lesson with your kids, depending on their age, ask them you know, what or how Jesus' definition of love differs from the culture's definition, or what does this story teach us about how we should treat people that are different from us and have that conversation with them. But I think it's also good for us to ask those same questions of ourselves and to challenge ourselves. You know, what are specific things that we can do to demonstrate love across ethnic, economic, cultural lines and things of that nature? Um, But I also want to challenge you to go deeper into this parable and to spend a little more time meditating on this because, you know, we see if you back up this, this parable starts in Luke 10, 25, but if you back up just a few verses to Luke 10, 21, uh, Jesus rejoices and prays and says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Similarly, in Matthew 13, 13, he says, this is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And so one of the takeaways from that is oftentimes when Jesus speaks in parables, he's not really, the, the what appears to be the surface truth is not necessarily the main point. And again, as I kind of teased at the beginning, we see that in this parable where at the beginning of this, uh, this discourse between Jesus and this lawyer is a simple question, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And so what Jesus is answering through this series of questions gets back to that. What should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says simply Deuteronomy 5, Leviticus 19, or excuse me, Deuteronomy 6, 5, Leviticus 19, 18, love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. It's that simple. Do those things and you'll live. We know though, looking back on it, we know from reading Paul that we all fall short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. None of us has lived up to that standard. We need a savior. If it was just as simple as doing acts of kindness, every one of us could then turn it around and be saved. 
And so one of the assumptions that's buried in the question is that there's something that I can do. And the fact that Jesus doesn't directly refute it, but actually validates and says, yes, if you do that, you will live, reminds us that, you know, he could have just as easily, instead of quoting Leviticus 19.18, he could have quoted Leviticus 19.2, where he says, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. So Jesus could have simply replied with that. Like, what do I need to do to be saved? Oh, it's simple. Be holy as God is holy. And of course we know none of us can live up to that standard. Um, So we recognize just from the very, very beginning of this, that this standard that Jesus is laying forth is not something that any one of us can attain apart from God and apart from the Holy Spirit. Um, but I also find it interesting, you know, I, I already kind of talked about the, the Samaritans and the Jews being enemies uh, and how much they loathed and despised each other. And you can even see it in this parable where when Jesus says, which one of these, the, the priest, the Levite or the Samaritan was a good neighbor, the lawyer couldn't even bring himself to say, well, the Samaritan, he, he says, oh, the, the one who showed compassion. Uh, he couldn't even say it was the Samaritan. And that's how deep this goes. But you know, and that I, I thought this is interesting in the context where um, last week Randy was talking about the Sermon on the Mount, uh, and he didn't get into the full sermon. But uh, shortly after the Beatitudes in chapter five, verse forty-three, Jesus says, "You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy." And then he goes on to say, "But I tell you, you know, love love those who who hate you and bless those who persecute you, and that sort of thing." Um, and it's funny, you know, Jesus says, "You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy." Well, who was it that said that? It was the scribes, the lawyers, just like this guy that taught that, that you're to love your neighbor, but it's okay to hate your enemy. Uh, and so we see that loaded in here. It's, and I think oftentimes we feel that way too, right? Where when we look at the church and we talk about loving one another, uh, we read passages that encourage us to love one another, which is a, a beautiful thing. And it's a beautiful dynamic. It's part of, you know, part of the church. It's, it's who we are. Uh, and when I think about loving you all, <laughs> uh, the church, uh, it gives me joy and it, it makes me happy to think of opportunities to help and to serve you. Um, but Jesus says it's not just your neighbor, it's not just your family, it's even those who persecute you. Uh, and that, again, is so much more challenging and deeper uh, for us. So the other thing that I find fascinating is um, the the lawyer, you know, he goes to the first question about what should I do to inherit eternal life? And then when he realizes that Jesus, you know, kind of played him trying to be justified, he throws out the question, well, who's my neighbor? And then we get the parable. But then instead of Jesus coming back and answering the question of who's my neighbor, uh, Jesus flips the question around and he says, who was the neighbor to that man? And the reason why that's important is because when we ask the question, who's my neighbor, it's a loaded question, Right. Um, just like the lawyers were taught or were teaching, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. When we ask who's my neighbor, the implication is that there's somebody outside of that sphere. There's somebody out there that's not a neighbor that I don't have to help. Uh, and when Jesus says, who is a neighbor to this man, we realize it's not about who, it's about what. It's about the act of love. It's about that outpouring of love. And again, this is not something that we can do on our own, which is why I find Luke eleven thirteen so encouraging because right after this passage in the very next chapter, when they're asking Jesus how to pray, he points out to them, he's like, you know, if you're, you're a father and if your kid asks you for food, you're not going to give him a snake or a scorpion. 
you know, you're going to give them what they ask. And so he says in Luke eleven thirteen, you know, you who are evil, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So we see right, right there after this passage, that is, we realize that we are hopeless and helpless to live the way that God commands us to live and wants us to live so that we can gain or earn eternal life. We're hopeless. We can't do it. But he promises us that those of us who ask the Father for the Holy Spirit, that he wants to give us, that he wants to transform us and conform us to the ways of the Son. So the last thought that I want to leave you with uh, is another one that kind of struck me as I read this, you know, trying to read it with fresh eyes is oftentimes when we read parables like this, it's tempting to try to read ourselves into the story. And of course, nobody wants to be the priest or the Levite. We don't want to be the indifferent one that's you know, ah, really good in the law, but, you know, as helping others, don't do that. Um, you know, we want to be the good Samaritan. We want to be the one that comes along and helps. And, you know, we want to teach that to our kids, you know, go be a good Samaritan. But I think if we're honest as we read this parable and we try to read ourselves into it, uh, in reality, we can relate most to the man at the beginning that's beaten and left for dead because our sin has destroyed us and we are helpless to do anything about it. There is nothing we can do. We are dying on the side of the road and it is Jesus who comes along and shows us what real love is, who pours himself out and gives everything for us, knowing that there's no way that we're going to repay him. Um, and when I realize that, that's when I have that encouragement that I see, uh, you know, again, how seeing how helpless we are and how much God loves us and that he wants us to love one another with that love. And he wants to give us the means to do that. So I hope this has been an encouragement. I'd like to end it on a, a, a word of prayer uh, and then uh, just uh, we'll go on from there. So Lord God we just want to take this moment and first off and say, thank you. Thank you for your son. And thank you for loving us. Even when we were by all accounts, unlovable, uh, and standing in opposition to you and turning our backs on you. Yet you always have loved us and pursued us and have gone to such great lengths, uh, to bring us back. We realize reading this passage, Lord, that none of us listening has the capacity to love others the way that you love us. Uh, but we rest in the hope that you've shown us the way through your son and that you will give us the Holy Spirit to continually renew us and to transform our hearts and our minds to help us become the way we are called to be, to love you with all our hearts and to love one another uh, the way that you loved us. So we just pray, Lord, for your spirit. Help us to become more like Christ each day. Uh, and then help us to be a light to the world around us because we know the world desperately needs your love and needs your light. We thank you so much for hearing our prayer. Uh, we love you, God. Pray that you be with us always. We offer this prayer in your son's name. Amen. Well, thanks for sticking with us this week. And I hope this has been an encouragement. Uh, and I just pray that you have a wonderful week. God bless.